In Jesus, verse 2, it says, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. How many disciples? We're not quite sure, but probably like five or six at this point. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, interesting that it doesn't say Mary, it just says the mother of Jesus. Um, why? Because she's becoming less significant in the gospel narrative at this point, much to the chagrin of Catholics. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Mary said to her, or, uh, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Hang on a second. Why, why would you serve the good wine after the bad wine? Why would you, why would you do that? Because people are so, uh, not so inebriated, but they're fairly you know, tipsy. They're not going to know the good from the bad. So if you want to go cheap, you bring out the good stuff later after everybody's drunk up all the bad stuff. So, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. There's so much here regarding uh, in this text that we could talk about. A lot of stuff that we can't possibly touch on everything this morning. There's a lot of stuff about legalism. There's a lot of stuff about theology. There's a lot of stuff about authority. There's a lot of stuff about culture. But I want to first start with this idea of the simple fact that Jesus was at a week-long wedding celebration. Most of us today, we get married, we have a reception or a party afterwards. Sometimes it's in a church fellowship hall. Sometimes it's uh, at a hotel. Sometimes, you know, it's outside under a tent, whatever. We have a celebration. And how long does a wedding reception normally last? The party will last a few hours, maybe sometimes uh, a little bit longer than that. But rarely will a wedding reception last longer than, say, half a day. This was such a big cultural event in those days that uh, a wedding reception or a party would last seven days, upwards of seven days. And uh, whole swaths of the community would come. They would stop what they were doing for days in order to celebrate with the bride and the groom. Um, and, and this is a big deal. So we know that in Cana, whoever was getting married had some sort of relationship with Jesus' family. Most likely, Joseph is, is dead at this point. Jesus is the head of the household. Mary, as an invited guest, seems to be playing some sort of role in um, the running of this event because she's keenly aware of the fact that the, the wine is all gone and this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. So her natural reaction is to do what? Well, I'll go to my firstborn son, and ask him in a very weird sort of request if he could help fix the problem. 
Now, in a, a twist, Jesus' response at first comes across as pretty curt. I mean, I don't know about you, but even as a, uh, when my mother was still alive, if I went to her as a 35 or a 40-year-old man and she asked me a question and my response to her was, Woman, what does this have to do with me? I would have got the same response I would have gotten as a 16-year-old boy, which was the back of her hand. Yet Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is a, a pivot point right here. Mary's concern is the here and now. Mary's concern is the wedding. Mary's concern maybe is the appearance on the, for the case of her and the bride and the groom and maybe the leader of the festivities. You don't run out of wine, and we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus' concern now is the start of his public ministry. And he does something curious here. He now links whatever is about to happen with the start of his travels to the cross. Because as you read the Gospel of John, we'll read it over the next couple months, you will see that time and time again, and in the other Gospels, as Jesus referred to his hour, he was talking about the day of his crucifixion. So whereas Mary's thinking about the wedding ceremony and the party that's at hand and the shame that could come if people run out of wine, Jesus is like, don't you get it? It's not about this anymore. It's about my ministry and the work of the cross. And if we go down this road now, there's no turning back. But what I love about this whole scene is the fact that our Lord, at the beginning of his ministry, would be willing to prioritize seven days of celebration with his disciples. How many of us, you know, we, we come to church, we hang out with the fellowship for a couple of hours, and we're ready to move on to other things. Uh, we engage ourselves in ministry, outreach ministry, evangelism, or we go and we participate in a social gathering in the neighborhood with our neighbors, and we do it for a few, few hours, and that's it. And the Lord, in such a different sort of context than any other religion out there, our Lord seems to think that it's fine to set aside seven days and prioritize partying with his neighbors in celebration. I love that. I love that our Jesus loves to celebrate. Because, as we'll see by the time we get to the end of this sermon, there's a lot of celebration that's yet to come for Christ's followers. So, what John does here is he calls this miracle a sign. And very unique to John's gospel. John's gospel is about two things, really. You see the whole gospel broken up into two kind of important dynamics. There are either signs that are going on, which are the miracles that Jesus performs, but John very rarely calls them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs are those things that point to who Jesus is, his authority, his credibility, his position. These signs are done. These miracles are done for a reason. They're done to prove who Jesus is. And then there's this other part of John's Gospel that's, that we see are known as discourses. So roughly like seven or eight signs, seven or eight discourses, the discourses are the lectures of Jesus. 
the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, all these sort of things that Jesus preaches in teaching of the kingdom of God. Signs and discourses. This is the first sign, the first miracle. So if this is a sign, the question for all of us this morning is, what is it pointing to? The first thing we see here is the first miracle was a sign to the creative power of Jesus Christ. The creative power of Jesus Christ. If I could be so bold in church this morning to talk about wine for a minute. Wine was so central and essential to ancient life. It's hard to even fully understand it today. It was basically the only other mainstay drink that they had outside of water. And and wine was drunk because of the water. You know, access to healthy water was difficult. Clean water was sometimes difficult. It was drunk in lieu of water. Uh, It was drunk in addition to water. And wine was drunk in spite of water, which is the case that we have here. Wine was drunk as part of the celebration. And I'll say right out of the gate, historians, expert theologians, ancient language experts, and commentarians from all over the place, all over the biblical spectrum, cannot come to agreement on what wine looked like in the days of Christ. We could push an agenda one way or the other. We could say here in this Southern Baptist church here this morning, well, that was just grape juice. Well, you tell me people who show up for seven days of partying for grape juice. And why would they roll out the good stuff after seven days of just drinking grape juice? But with that said, the problem with wine in the day was keeping it from fermenting. When they stored it, if you kept wine for any length of time, it fermented on its own. So the only way you were drinking something that wasn't fermented is if you were literally almost just pulling it right off of the, of the vine itself. If you had any kind of storage of, of, of drink, it had some fermentation to it. So I don't know what all the experts are going to come to agree on on this, but I will say this with quite a bit of confidence. I don't think this was a party that was simply all grape juice. I think there was at least a little bit of fermentation going on here, and people were enjoying themselves in the midst of it. And we could focus on this this morning. I don't think that's the focus of the text at all, and we won't spend any more time on that. But I believe that this was a party. They were enjoying their wine, and it was a good time. And Jesus was right in the midst of it. Now, Here's the issue. I've sat at weddings uh, where at the reception, almost guaranteed at some point in time, you're sitting around your little table there wherever the bride and groom have sat you and you get to know one another, and inevitably the conversation turns to what you liked about the wedding, what you didn't like about the wedding, what you would have done differently, why are they serving this, why aren't they serving that, why are these people seated here? You know, and it just turns into kind of this critique of, well, if I was doing the wedding, I would do this. I experienced it in my own wedding. My, my oldest brother, who was one of my uh, best men, 
came up to me while I'm on the dance floor dancing, enjoying myself, having a great celebration. He comes up to me and he's like, hey, just wanted to tell you I'm having a good time, but is this really the best you could do for food? <laughs> and it took everything inside of me to not turn around. Now, my wife and I, we had our, our wedding reception in, at a hotel in downtown Lancaster. It took everything inside of me not to turn to him at that moment and say, you knucklehead, the mission is right down the street. Go find yourself a good meal there. Um, people just have this knack for showing up and critiquing weddings and receptions. Uh, and it would have been no different at this wedding. It, it's doubtful that Mary implored Jesus' help here initially just seeking a miracle. I think she was just so desperate that the bride and the groom were going to run out of wine and that the crowd was going to turn against them, that her only option was to go to her oldest boy and say, can you help? Can you do something? And even in the midst of his response, which clearly just kind of goes right over her head, she turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to do, do it. It's almost like she's got this massive problem, and she just dumps it right in Jesus' lap, and no matter what he thinks or says, he's going to now have to deal with this, and she says, whatever he says, do it. So, finding a, venue, a vendor or a vineyard owner at this point in time was probably a pretty difficult task. So Jesus comes back and he says, what's this to do with me? Uh, these people are going to ride on a wine, but I, my mind is on bigger things right now. But he acknowledges this beautiful connection between the public miracle that he's about to do and the hour of his death. And he's maybe even wrestling a little bit in his flesh with the process to the cross now beginning. And yet he does what God does. Without thinking, without thinking much, and with very little effort, he, he, as creator God that we learned about in the first chapter of John, goes on full display. No other gospel reference, no other gospel references this miracle probably because the other disciples weren't yet called, but Jesus changes the molecular compound of water into wine, oinos. And this isn't like some little simple thing. I was looking at a, a children's Bible picture this week, and it showed these wee little tiny jars, and the servants were filling them up with water. And, but yet the Bible's really clear. Each one of these jars contained a lot. What's the exact gallon here? 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus is like, fill it to the top, the brim. Fill it the whole way up. And what he does is he takes water and he changes it into wine. The whole thing is crazy. He's not just changing the grape juice, the grape juice, the fermentation, the whole thing that makes good wine Jesus does like that, and no small feat. It's now, instead of 120 to 150 or 180 gallons of water, you now have 150 gallons of wine. Now, however long this party's been going on, they're set now. They are good to go. And I love that, 
I really do. Because only God could do such a thing. Sign after sign after sign in John's Gospel, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And every sign points to the fact that he is the all-powerful creator God, the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, undisputed, sovereign, ruler of all. Now, the second thing that this miracle does, this sign, it points to the better covenant of Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. It points to the better covenant of Jesus Christ. This whole miracle starts with jars that were used for washing. Jars they were used for washing. It was the, the, the purification jars. Uh, and there's a lot of scripture that kind of enhances this idea in the Old Testament and Leviticus, but generally speaking, uh, the scripture says in the Old Testament that uh, priests and Jews alike, all Jews, uh, before they eat, they need eat, before they would eat, they needed to go through a ritual washing of their hands, and all the utensils needed to be washed uh, ritually as well. So it's not unusual when you come to a feast like this that there would be big jars where, as people came into the feast, they would wash, and uh, by that they would be ceremonially clean before the Lord, because we know now, based upon modern day science, that there was no actual cleansing that would go on with that water, not the kind of cleansing that would do any good with regard to preventing the transmission of germs, but it was a ceremonial thing. They would wash themselves before they would partake of food and drink. And these jars were there meant to be filled with water that people would wash from as they came in to the party. So after filling it with water, he tells them to serve it to the master of the feast. So they fill these things to the brim, you know, let's say 150 gallons of water, and then they scoop out some, and they take it to the master of the feast, and the master of the feast would be like the party planner. This is the person who the bride and the groom entrusted to handle all the details of the party. So they scoop it out, and they take it to him, because before they offered any kind of new wine, it needed to be sampled to make sure it was of good quality. So they give it to him, he tastes it, and he's like, whoa! Where did this come from? And he goes to the bridegroom and actually says, hey, uh, most people, they like, you know, they serve the good stuff and then the bad stuff. You're saving the good stuff until now. Like, why? This is fantastic. They're drinking. I don't, this would have blown the mind of every Jew that was there. They are drinking from purification jars. They are drinking a new wine from purification jars. Mark documents the conflict of these cleansing pitchers later in Mark 7. It says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So what's going on here? After the disciples had been hanging out with Jesus long enough, they just started eating. You know, they were hungry, they would eat. They didn't go through the ceremonial 
washing stuff. And Jesus seemed to be okay with this. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The teachers of the law, the scribes and Pharisees, had taken that which was the law of God and they had defiled it. They had taken a tradition and they had turned it into a mandate. They had taken the law of God and they had chained people down with it. And Jesus comes along and he takes that which has chained people down for centuries, washing, purification rites, and he turns it into a party. Because that's what God does in our life, isn't it? God comes in and he takes those things that, that bind us, those laws and regulations that, that Paul would say kill us. They ensnare us and enslave us. And Jesus comes along and he takes those things away and he gives us new wine to drink. And he gives us gladness for our hearts. And he gives us cheer for our lives. And he gives us liberation for our souls. What's happening here is people are drinking wine from that which was a tool of traditional legal requirement. It was just mind-blowing what was happening here. And they didn't even, most of them didn't even realize it. And if you remember, not too long ago, this summer, we talked about this idea of drinking and ingesting Christ. Remember Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you'll have no part of me. This is no longer about simply trying to keep the law. This miracle, this sign, at this party, this wedding celebration, makes it about something else. Remember Jesus' conversation with Peter in the upper room? As our Lord, you know, he put a towel around his waist and he kneeled down and he began to wash his disciples' feet, and he came to Peter. And do you remember Peter's response? Let's look at it, John 13. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you don't belong to me. And Simon Peter explained, Then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, The person who has bathed all over does not need to wash, except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. See, what's happening here is the traditional... Uh, legalistic purification rites, the people, they would come in, they had to wash themselves in order to be seen as clean. 
in the presence of God. They had to wash themselves in order to be able to eat or do anything in the presence of God. And Jesus, just in this one miracle, what he communicates is, this is no longer about legalism, this is about celebration. You are no longer washed by what you do, you are washed by who I am. You are washed by my miraculous workings and nothing of your own that you do. None of us are saved by works. And when we talk about works, we're talking about all those legal requirements that the Bible seems to lay upon us in the Old Testament. There's nothing that we can do in order to please God. It is only through the good and gracious love of Jesus Christ that we are washed. And when a person is fully washed in Christ, then the celebration is truly beginning. Unless I wash you. This isn't about keeping the outside clean anymore. This is about Christ providing a better way. So Paul communicated a sim- this similar truth that Peter realized that night in the upper room, and he communicated it this way in Romans 8. He said, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, I want you to get this idea that Jesus Christ comes and cleanses us of His own accord. There is no longer any purification that needs to take place on our part. Once we, by faith, come to Christ and we are cleansed by His blood. The celebration, really, this is a bride and a groom celebration, and we'll get into that in a second as well. But in reality, this is a celebration of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed, is what the law says. So I hate to see Christians who are living as if they're still under the law. But we are free. And we have reason to party. And we have reason to celebrate. The miracle also reminds us that the good things we have in Christ, what those things are. I don't think it should be lost on us in this first miracle either, this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, this is a bride and a groom celebration that Jesus was invited to. And the bridegroom someday will be Christ himself. And he is going to invite his bride. What used to happen was a man and a woman would be betrothed and they would enter into a period of engagement, betrothal. That would, and at that point, they were legally married, but they didn't live together. They would be engaged for about a year. And the idea was that this gave the, the man time to prepare his home in order to bring his wife into his home. 
And when the, the home was ready, let's say a year later, then there would be a huge party, which is what we're witnessing right here, where the, bra or the groom would go and receive the bride from her home, along with all the, uh, all the groomsmen, while the, the other virgins of the town would be getting the bride ready for the groom to come and get her. So there's a party going on over here at the bride's house. There's a party going on over here at the groom's house. And then at some point in time, the groom's like, it's time. There's a shout, and they all head off. And the groom would go to the bride's house, the father's house, and receive her. And the party would just continue to snowball. And they take that, and all the, all the party members, the bridal party members, you know, and they're heading back to the groom's house. And the wedding would occur. And on that first day, that celebration would begin. And for seven days, the whole community would celebrate what's going on. Jesus Christ is the groom. There is going to be a celebration when the groom comes for his bride. Who is the bride? It's the church. It's us. The day is coming where there's going to be a shout, and the groom is going to come, and he's going to receive the bride unto himself, and he's going to bring the bride home, and we are going to party. And it's going to make this party in Cana seem like a drop in the bucket. This is what we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the mighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's a day coming where Jesus is going to take us home. And we are going to party. And there will be wine there. And it will be made by him and it will be good. And it will flow forever and ever and ever. And we are going to enjoy the presence of our groom. And the whole community is going to celebrate for eternity. And all of the angelic beings, all of the heavenly hosts are going to cry out over and over again, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. As Paul would later say in Romans 8, I love this. God is for us. Who can be against us? We need to live in this confidence that we belong to the groom. And we are not to be downtrodden, downcast, depressed, suffering, and uh, forlorn people. We have a party invitation. We've received it. We don't know quite when the day is coming. But we're going. If you belong to Christ, you've trusted in him, you are now part of the bride, which is his church, and we are going to the party. The last thing I'll say today is this, point three. This sign, this first miracle, was a sign to the capable fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The capable fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Capable fulfillment of what? Well, this miracle clearly tells us two things. Jesus is quite capable 
of fulfilling our personal needs. He's quite capable of fulfilling our personal needs. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not going all Joel Osteen on you this morning. I'm not telling you that Jesus exists to meet your needs, to make you happy. That's not what I'm saying. But the couple at this wedding had a legitimate problem. Just like my brother at my wedding, if they ran out of wine, they would have heard about it. They would have stopped the dancing music, you know, no Macarena until somebody introduces some more wine. So this is a a legitimate, real problem. And Jesus could have blown this off. Could he not have blown this off? His time had not yet come. He didn't have to deal with this, but he used it for kingdom purposes. So in the process of meeting the needs, the Lord meeting needs, the Lord graciously considers our personal state. And what I love is the amount Jesus changes into wine not only saves the couple from embarrassment and public humiliation and shame, but what a nice wedding gift as well. Because when everybody left, I guarantee you they still had a storehouse of wine left over. Just not to belabor this point too much, but would you allow me just a moment to to make an analogy here? Because this is so important. It's been weighing on my heart for weeks. If, if you invite Christ to your wedding and you invite Christ into your marriage and put him as the center of that marriage, I challenge you to watch how your life will overflow with God's gracious goodness. Seriously. So many people get married, and they make the marriage about the other person. Or they make the marriage about themselves. Or they make their marriage about social reasons, or they make their marriage about reasons of the state. They make their marriage about uh, tax ramifications, or they make their marriage about children. Your marriage is about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And the covenant that he made to his bride, the church. When I marry somebody, the most important thing I want people to walk away from remembering from that wedding ceremony is that Jesus Christ died so that he might marry his bride, the church, and spend eternity with her. And our marriages on earth are just a reflection of that love that Christ has for his bride. Now, does it mean that you won't have ups and downs in your marriage if Christ is at the center of it? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if you're looking for some sort of personal fulfillment or having personal needs met in your marriage as a result of who you marry or how much money they make or the tax ramifications that you have now that you are filing jointly, I don't care what the reason is. The only reason you have to get married is Christ. And if you put him at the middle, when your spouse doesn't replace a toilet paper roll or on a much more serious note, you wake up one day and you find out that your child that you love so much has been diagnosed with autism or that your spouse has been diagnosed with something terminal 
Or, let's say you get to the end of your life, and the one that you've been married to for 47 years or 55 years goes home to be with the Lord. You know that your identity in that marriage was not found in that individual, but that your identity and your fulfillment and the goodness that you experience in life is found in Christ and Christ alone. Greatest challenge I can give you today. In your marriage, invite Christ in. Put him at the middle. Don't look for the other person to make you happy. Let Christ be the one who meets your personal needs. And you'll wake up with a whole lifetime. A whole, he left them wine as a wedding present. I guarantee you, Christ is going to leave you as a follower of him a, a lifetime of wedding presents for you to enjoy. This is true in all areas of our lives as well. Jesus put it this way in John 10.10, talking about the enemy. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus isn't interested in you going through life just as a, without any joy and half-hearted commitment and personal suffering all the time, but Jesus wants you to experience joy Sometimes through those things, sometimes in spite of those things, but Jesus wants you to experience a full life no matter what. So Jesus is capable of fulfilling our personal needs, and more importantly, Jesus is capable of fulfilling and meeting our spiritual needs. Our spiritual needs. This, this text screams out, Jesus meets our spiritual needs. We read at the very end of this text. Why the sign? Why this miracle? It says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. What's happening here is that his disciples' faith is being strengthened. They're now like John the Baptist, behold, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But this ministry that Jesus is doing here is so dramatically different than what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist, living in the wilderness, suffering, eating locusts and honey, preaching repentance and conviction. And along comes Jesus, and his ministry starts where? Doing the same thing? Sackcloth, ashes, suffering? No, he goes to a party and celebrates a wedding, and then he decides to bless the wedding couple with 150 gallons of wine. And his disciples are like, whoa. That guy in the desert, he was special. But he was nothing compared to this guy. This is God. And they put their faith in him. And such as it is with God's word today. Why do we even preach God's word on Sunday morning? Why is it important that I get up here and I, I ramble on and on and read the Bible and teach things? Why is that even significant? Because it says the disciples' faith was strengthened. They put their faith in him. They were strengthened. Actually, the word is epistuson, from the Greek word pistueo, which means to personally put your faith into a person or thing. Why do we preach the word of God? So that people might entrust their lives more to Christ. Despite the miracles, 
it doesn't look like many people followed him after this. Can you believe that? Maybe because it was kind of secret. But it says that his disciples knew exactly what happened. And they doubled down. They put all their faith in him at this point. This wasn't a moment. These guys knew this. This wasn't some sort of parlor trick. This wasn't a a magic act that was going on. They saw those jars filled with 150 gallons of water. And then they watched people celebrate, drinking gallons and gallons of wine. This was an overwhelming moment for these guys. And they decided at this moment, according to the scripture, that they were all in. They were all in. To the point later where when they're confronted with a difficult truth, they say to Jesus, you know, hey, where else are we going to go? Everybody else is offended by this, but you hold the words of life. We can't go anywhere else. Which brings us back to the very purpose of John's gospel in John 20. We're going to read this often throughout this text, or throughout this sermon series. John said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole reason we read John's gospel is so that people's faith may be strengthened and that they may put their trust in him. That's why Jesus changed water into wine. Not to prove to the world whether it's right or wrong to drink alcohol. And this is the whole point of the text, if that's what you're worried about. The idea of this text is so that people might put their faith in Christ and be saved in him as his disciples did. And that's my invitation to you this morning. If you're here and say, ah, I relate to so many things you said this morning. Sometimes I feel like I'm living for, I'm living for a grade or I'm living for a person or I'm living for personal uh, uh, fulfillment. Jesus Christ came. The Bible says that For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 3. God's desire is that you put your faith in him in order that you might be saved. And then someday, we're all going to hang out at that wedding feast together. And we are going to exclaim glory, glory, glory over and over and over again to the groom, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. If you need to put your faith in Christ today, what that means is you say, I believe that I'm a sinner, Lord. I believe that there's no way I can reach the mark of perfection. I believe I disappoint you. And that breaks my heart. I can't fix myself. I need you. I need the forgiveness of the cross. I need the sacrifice of Jesus when he took my sin upon himself and he took his righteousness and he placed it upon me. So that no longer do I have to fear the wrath of God. God poured his wrath out on his own son and punished him on the cross. And instead of giving us that punishment, he gave it to him. And God says, all you need to do is put your faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross. And believe in me. And make him your Lord and Savior. And I will come into your life and I will forgive you and I will make you a child of God. You hear that? There's nothing you have to do except trust Christ, because that's all we can do. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask you to do that if you've never done that before. Let's close in prayer today.